I remember when I moved to Italy in 1987, being surprised to discover the standard configuration of bathrooms. Right? There's one open lobby with sinks for washing your hands, and then individual stalls with lockable doors that go all the way to the ground. So men and women use them without distinction, the original um, all-inclusive, all-gender bathroom. The chief advantage is that you don't have to form a line outside the men's or the women's room in moments like this. You just, it's first come, first serve. The simplest definition of politics is the art of deciding how we ought to live together. And every question that involves ought, should, is finally a theological question. There is no way of answering what we should do, what we ought to do, without reference to the first cause and the final end of our existence. It is therefore, I submit, not coincidental that this moment of gender incoherence in Western civilization comes at exactly the moment of the great apostasy, of the falling away from faith in Jesus Christ as the incarnate word, because we only know who we are if we know whose we are. And so many people today believe that biblical religion is the enemy of human freedom and flourishing. That they begin the consideration of how their lives should be ordered by denying the God of the Bible exists or that he is good. And then we're off to the races. Which means that there is no adequate answer to the questions that Mary has asked with such precision without a theological dimension to the answer. Yes, medical science, including biology and psychology and sociology, are essential. We have to be attentive to the political and cultural dimensions of these things. But all of that is incomplete unless there is a theological answer. And in the search for that, TJ will now introduce our second speaker. Our next speaker, Father Jonathan Duncan, has done at St. Mary's the impossible, and that is he has turned Father Newman into the small, quiet priest. Father Duncan has a thousand different jobs, and obviously the most prestigious of these is being a board member at the Center for Evangelical Catholicism. He has served several years, he served several years in ordained ministry within the Anglican tradition before he and his family were received into full communion with the Catholic Church in 2013. He has a BA in Medieval Studies from the Sewanee University of the South and a Master's of Divinity from Neshota House Theological Seminary, where he also served as an adjunct lecturer on liturgy and choral music. He was ordained to the priesthood for the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter on the 29th of March, 2014. 
and is now a priest of the Diocese of Charleston. Father Duncan has served parishes in both North Texas and South Carolina and is currently the Director of Spiritual Care at Bon Secours St. Francis Health. In addition to his work in Catholic health care, Father Duncan is the chaplain at St. Joseph's Catholic School, the Catholic chaplain to Furman University, and the parochial vicar here at St. Mary's Catholic Church. He's traveled throughout the area preaching parish missions, and I actually heard him this morning receive an invitation to do another parish mission. Um, and he has spoken to various groups on the subjects of the youth, um, young adults, evangelization, and Father Duncan is the chaplain of our local Legatus chapter, and he is also a member of the Knights of Columbus and the Church Music Association in America. So I hope you help me welcome to the stage Father Jonathan Duncan. So for the last about three to five months, whenever someone would find out that I was giving this talk to the person, every single person would respond with, you didn't volunteer for that, did you? <laughs> and of course the answer is no, I did not. Because for so many, um, including clergy, um, we don't want to touch this topic, which is unfortunate because nature abhors a vacuum and in the absence of a thoughtful theological pastoral reflection, you're left with me. And in the absence of this, you're left with those who have no allegiance to Christian anthropology, to a Christian account of nature, to the centrality of the cross of the Lord Jesus as a witness to the defining norm of Christian life. I want to read from you one quote from a paper MTF, Transgender Christians Experience, a qualitative study. And the question was asked to several participants who consider themselves transgender, so for our purposes suffer from gender dysphoria. What would you have wanted from the church? Someone to cry with me rather than just denounce me. It's scary to see God not rescue someone from cancer or schizophrenia or gender identity disorder. Learn to allow your compassion to overcome your fear and repulsion. End quote. In his book, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, the evangelical Protestant professor of psychology, Mark Yarhouse, who's a professor at Wheaton College, repeatedly emphasizes the need to distinguish between, on the one hand, pastoral care, and on the other, cultural engagement. And I think this is a helpful distinction for our discussions today. Unless, of course, we choose to withdraw from the world entirely, inasmuch as we seek to witness to the gospel and its implications, we will be in a place of, of engaging with the culture on these issues. But for my time, my concern is not with the effectiveness of strategies in cultural engagement, but rather with the care of the baptized. 
in an effort to face activists who very often have lost all sense of right reason, we have sometimes too quickly forgotten there are real people in the world today suffering from what we call now gender dysphoria, previously gender identity disorder, and now I'm told gender dysphoria has also passed out of favor. But at least for the next half hour, I'll be using that term until I get corrected. This experience of distress related to having a psychological and emotional gender identity that does not match one's biological sex is not out there somewhere, but within the ranks of the baptized. Gender dysphoria is within families in our parishes, in our schools, and it has been given to us now in this moment in divine providence. So I'm not speaking to or for activists. I'm speaking to those who are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus as best they know how in the way of the cross and yet find themselves or their family members with feelings, perceptions, and desires that seem outside their control. And because I'm speaking to those believers, the question that is before me is different from, to some degree, the political question. First, it's necessary, and again, to just quickly go over, because we've heard this well, and thank you, Mary, just the reality that's presented to us. Today, as many as 1.6 million identify as gender dysphoric. Typically, it's experienced uh, at the younger end, though there is some difference there. And I'm not going to specifically refer to what Abigail Schreier um, has coined, rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a different thing, and there's, there's questions about that. But I want to look just in the most general way possible at this malady of gender dysphoria. Regardless of what may be the cause, and that is, of course, up for debate, with some thinking it it's rooted in prenatal realities, other believing it's completely socially conditioned and mixtures. Regardless of what may be the cause, it can't be denied that for many, this reality is not something to merely be brushed aside. In many cases, they experience it not as an act of the will or a choice of the mind, but simply an ingrained perception that they do not fit that they do not belong. And as we approach this as Catholic Christians, it's necessary that we avoid two equally catastrophic ditches in our reflection and response. To the one, to the one side, is the possibility of ignoring the divinely revealed reality and accept uncritically this new cultural shift. In this ditch, Gender and biological sex are two completely different realities, and not only are they two completely separate realities, but the determinative reality is gender, which is, of course, immutable in this perception, while sex, rooted in physicality, is obviously mutable. At a deeper level, on this ditch, in this ditch, this shift also says profound things about who we are. You are what you want yourself to be, who you perceive yourself to be. And as Father alluded to earlier, this is a modern reincarnation of an older wisdom of the East. 
that the body is at best irrelevant and at worst a hindrance to your true flourishing. This is obviously a denial of so much of Christian anthropology, a denial of the perspicuity of the created order, a denial that reality can reveal itself, a denial that we have something to learn and receive from the natural world. And led to its ultimate conclusion, it's a confusion about the resurrection, the goodness of creation, and it undoes so much of the church's teaching on sexuality. It is destructive. That's the ditch on one side. To the other side, is likewise destructive. This ditch ignores the experience reality of the faithful and simply declares that this is all the result of a defect of will or understanding. Sometimes it can assume bad faith on the part of those who may be suffering from this gender dysphoria. And it refuses to take seriously the struggles and needs of the faithful and in doing so, sends them out the doors of the church into the welcoming arms of a culture that says, again, your body is at best irrelevant and at worst a hindrance. It is destructive of our sense, then, of the supernatural, destructive of souls. So we have to stay out of either. Now, depending upon your background, depending upon your experiences, your political landscape, your own convictions, you will find yourself drawn, perhaps leaning more towards one versus the other. But the Catholic path is to avoid both. Now we have to understand this as a Christian. And the scriptures give us a paradigm for understanding what is happening with these 1.6 million men and women. We have to see this not as a problem of confusion, but a problem of the whole created order. It's a problem of you and of me. It's a cosmic reality. And the reality is one that we can call simply futility. Futility is how we describe something that is divorced from its purpose, from its proper end. Its Greek form is matayotes, and it's used throughout the New Testament to refer to differing kinds of disordered thinking and behavior. But the most relevant use to our discussion here is found in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, where he describes the condition that afflicts the whole created order as a result of sin and rebellion. And the word he uses, while it does have a semantic range, in this instance is nearly universally translated as futility. Here's what he says, chapter 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So St. Paul presents two realities. First, that of matayotes, or futility, to which all creation has been subjected. And then there is creation's response to that futility, which is in Greek stenadzo, to sigh or groan. Creation manifests this matayotes, this futility, most profoundly in death. After all, life promises life. The mystery of life is always offering, always promising more, and death is a radical breach. Death is the ultimate sign of futility, when things don't relate to their ends. But this futility likewise abounds when our limbs slowly begin to fail, and I am, more quickly than I like, beginning to feel this myself. As we feel more and more in pain, as we begin to experience more and more that our bodies seem to not respond as they once did, we are experiencing in a certain kind of way the burden of futility that our brothers and sisters with gender dysphoria live with, that of being alienated to some degree from the body. Now, the difference is significant, though, because in our experience of the body's futility, we encounter those feelings of futility and the accompanying stenazo, the, uh, the sighing, the groaning, when we come up against our body's weakness, usually in advanced age. So it's in weakness and age that we experience futility, whereas for someone suffering with gender dysphoria, they face this futility when they come up against their body's strength very often in young adulthood, or even perhaps in youth. The pain and suffering that these brothers and sisters in Christ experience can't be so easily brushed aside when we take seriously St. Paul's description of our present state. This is the stenazo, the sighing, the groaning of which he writes. Now, it may be helpful for us to consider two other examples of where this futility plays out in human brokenness, but without the cultural clashes. One example that's probably somewhat well-known to us is uh, bulimia nervosa. This is, and as you're probably aware, characterized by uncontrolled episodes of overeating called binging, and it's what happens when our vision of food becomes futile or disconnected from reality. Another example might be anorexia nervosa, another eating disorder characterized by an abnormally low body weight, an intense fear of gaining weight. And this is what happens when our vision of our own body becomes futile and disconnected from reality. 3% of us do not have the ability for our eyes to function in unity with our body. We're blind, which of course we know is a futility. 4% of us do not have the ability for our ears to function in unity with our body. We call that deafness. In both these, we experience some of the futility of which Paul speaks, where we are disconnected from the proper telos, the proper end, for which something in our body was made. So faced with this futility, how can it be resolved? 
Well, inasmuch as it produces tension and sorrow and sighing, the stenazo of which St. Paul speaks, there is a natural desire to resolve it. And one way to resolve this tension of futility is to surgically or chemically alter the individual such that their expression of gender reflects the perception of gender, such that their uh, perception of gender is the dominating element and their biological sex is to some degree manipulated to appear to reflect the expression of gender. But sadly, this attempt is an attempt to resolve the futility by lashing out at the woundedness. This is like lashing out at my eyes because they struggle, gouging them out because they don't function as they once did, or pretending still that they don't exist. This path cannot be the way forward for those hoping and longing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there are certainly other surgical means that we use to resolve this futility. If your eyes aren't working properly, we have surgeries and miscellaneous things we can do to help aid and resolve some of that futility. But the difference is those things point forward to an ultimate healing. Whereas the surgical treatments that we heard earlier, these do not. These offer only sterile simulations. Now another way to resolve this tension is through psychological treatments that seek to correct the gender identity perception such that the perception begins to match the individual's biology. And this approach would obviously be the most helpful resolution as it points forward to that final healing of which St. Paul speaks. But socially, these treatments are increasingly being associated with the now much maligned treatments used in evangelical Christian communities known as sometimes as conversion therapies. While there has been some success in some of these treatments, its effectiveness is still somewhat contentious. And many have experienced that even psychotherapy does not bring an end to the futility. So how do we respond as followers of the Lord Jesus? What do we do in the face of this futility in our communities, in our families, in our parishes? I would offer first that we not surrender the Christian story. The binary, now so malign, is the drama the Christian story at its heart is that this universe itself is a player in a great drama that is unfolding. And that there is in this great drama a relentless, beckoning, virile groom. And that this groom, this protagonist, is continually seeking after this wounded and wandering creation. That this bride is fruitful and beautiful and that when the two are united, miraculous wonders unfold. This drama of the Lord God in creation is enfleshed in the particularity of the Son of God, the Messiah, and his bride, Israel. The glorious binary of God and creation of Christ in the church, it's written in the book of Genesis as you open up and see the binaries unfold, heaven and earth. 
Sea, dry land, light, dark. Complementary pairs working together, the ultimate being man and woman, coming together to bear witness to the fruitfulness that God has put into his creation. And behold, they were very good. We cannot surrender the Christian story on the drama of the binary. We cannot surrender the Christian story on the goodness of the body. We have a better story to tell than modernist gender ideology. If the progressive gender ideology is true, then when I meet with students, either in high school, perhaps in college, when I meet with teenage girls and boys from whom I have heard this, I'm ugly. My body is ugly. If the gender ideology is true, then I have to then say, yeah, you might be right. Your body might be wrong, ugly, a curse, not a blessing, and we need to fix it, perhaps. But we have a better story to tell. You were made body and soul, and you will be redeemed body and soul. Your body has meaning and purpose, goodness and beauty. We have a better story. We have to also be clear about the Christian story in objective realities versus perceptions. Christians are in an important role of saying that there are certain realities which are objective and not dependent on your feelings and perceptions. We believe that there is a whole life of the soul, an objective sacramentality to the world that is not dependent upon your perception of it. You were chosen at baptism and reborn by water and the spirit. Whether you remember it, perceive it, or care about it, it is an objective reality. You are objectively fed by the Lord Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, whether you perceive it. And in fact, nearly all of us do not perceive it by the senses as we would like. But as Aquinas wrote, only by seeing, taught by faith. We should also, in addition to maintaining this Christian story, we also must not further underlying confusion in other ways. We have to stop talking in confusing ways about our bodies, about our lives, about our sick relatives. It is always sad when I hear things like, well, I know my father isn't there anymore. I know my mother's already gone, even though She's alive in a hospital bed. No, your brother, your sister is not just a vegetable. That's not true. Additionally, we have to stop furthering confusion in other ways. The funeral being one of the primary ones. How you plan your father's funeral has everything to do with how your children will see their bodies. You are sending innumerable messages about the nature of the body. For one example, it's projected by 2040 that the vast, overwhelming majority, close to 80%, of those who die will be cremated. Of course, an acceptable, honorable way to treat the dead. But the majority of those seeking cremation right now do not 
intend to be laid to rest reverently in sacred space, or even kept at home, but increasingly scattered. Thomas, Lim Thomas Lynch, the poet slash funeral director, which is quite an ascription, said of these trends, people want the body disappeared because they don't want to be reminded of the grief. This is the first generation of our species that deals with death without dealing with the dead. Is there any wonder that so many of our people, our children, our grandchildren, believe like the Stoics of old that their bodies are not them, that they're just some disembodied mind, that that's the real them? Is there any wonder they believe that and that when they face gender dysphoria, a dysphoria between the perceived reality of their gender and the body given to them, they're so quick to square the circle by carving the body. Because if it's irrelevant, if it's not me, then what does it matter what I do with it? Another response, we need to let the church and the church's tradition propose a fuller vision of the sexes. And I appreciate Mary for, for making note of this earlier. An unnecessarily limiting vision of what it means to be a Catholic man or a Catholic woman will only exacerbate the tension of those who feel not at home in their masculinity or femininity. Proposing a fuller vision of each sex includes those places where the different kinds of gifts and virtues are accentuated. I'll put it in a more tangible context. As a teenager, four weeknights each week, I played football. One weeknight, I was learning church music and singing in choirs. And I loved them both. I'm, as, as TJ said, I'm the large priest on staff. I'm 6'4", burly, and I'm also the only man in here wearing a dress. The church's, the church's tradition allows for a fuller picture. For young men, there's a great tradition of, of course, sacred music, pioneers in sacred art, faithful for young women. There's a great tradition of strength, of authoritative teaching. We are, after all, the church of reverend mothers, of even back in our history, mitered abbesses, of, of Jones of Arc and Catherines of Siena and Mothers Angelica. Read the biography, you'll get a sense of what I mean. Our tradition has broad examples of what Catholic masculinity and femininity looks like. And if those lines are too narrow, then we will only push the faithful into the arms of a culture ready to embrace them. We should be open, lastly open and honest with ourselves. The Lord Jesus warns about trying to remove the speck while a log remains in our own eye. And it's just as much the case that we ought not to rush to put the cross on our brother's back 
while being slow to even acknowledge our own. What those with gender dysphoria often hear from the church are recommendations and even consolations from Christians who come from a place of strength and self-sufficiency. They often hear a vision of life, stenazo, and a path forward, the cross-shaped life, but from one who seems to be unburdened by the size and unweighted by the cross. But if they hear only from witnesses for whom nothing about sexuality or personality needs to be healed, the witness is weakened. So what does this mean for us? What are the crosses that you and I can acknowledge? Well, for married Catholics living in the world today, seeking to live lives shaped by the gospel, one immediately comes to mind. Based on the now famous 2011 Guttmacher Institute study, 98% of, this is their quote, sexually experienced women of childbearing age who identify themselves as Catholic have used a method of contraception other than natural family planning at some point in their lives. Now there are questions, of course, surrounding the wording of the study, but the fact remains that there is a percentage of Catholics, sadly not a large one, who seek to live the church's teaching in natural family planning, and that experience for them is a cross. It can be a very real cross. And it leads sometimes to moments of doubt, of sin, and thanks be to God, of mercy. It's a cross that involves humbly listening to the body we've been given, as opposed to trying to manipulate it to resolve the tension. In this, every Catholic marriage seeking to live the faith can find a place of commonality and compassion with brothers and sisters who identify as gender dysphoric. That's one example. Would the so-called trans community, those who suffer from gender dysphoria, would they feel more open to the Christian community if we were honest about our sighs, our stenazo, our groaning, our wounds? Perhaps. The cross of Christ cannot be something simply for someone else to take up. It has to be the mark of every follower, and the size of this old order have to be intelligible from every disciple of the Lord Jesus. Father Michael Brungard, a priest of Wichita in the Dominican journal Nova et Vetera, spoke this way about his ministry with transgender youth. I hear from this movement, the transgender movement, not really a cry for new rights, but the cry of a suppressed and reduced humanity, a reduced and suppressed heart. But this is the cry of every human heart. It's no different from the cry of your heart, of my heart. In essence, the transgender movement is revealing us to ourselves. And in that image, I want to just consider three focal images of how those suffering from gender dysphoria and how those who wish to respond ought to consider that response. And I'm getting these from Richard Hayes, the New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity, in his moral vision of the New Testament. 
In it, he sets out three focal images for approaching difficult moral questions. Community, cross, and new creation. Providentially, Father Brungart, in that same Nova et Vetera article, describes three themes that continually came up in his conversation with gender dysphoric individuals. Do you want to know what they are? Belonging, identity, freedom. Almost completely parallel. Community, cross, new creation. First, community. Hayes reminds us the church is a countercultural community of discipleship, which means to those struggling with these gender dysphoric uh, perceptions, their sexuality is not purely a private affair, but something that concerns the church. What each believer does with their body is the business of the church. We are one community in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who do not struggle in that way, we have to be the community that welcomes and waits and sighs and groans with those who come. Or they will find another. If making headway in cultural struggles is always our primary end, then we may see even the slightest pastoral moments or pastoral concessions as retreating from the battle. And I would encourage us not to consider that the case. Community is the longing, not just for those with gender dysphoria, but for all of us. Pope Benedict XVI quoted, in male and female, he created them. The essential fact is that the human person becomes himself only with the other. The I becomes itself only from the thou and from the you. The answer to those struggling with this must be the community of Christ Jesus. But it also has to be a community centered on the cross. Hayes goes on to tell us that Jesus' death on the cross is the paradigm for faithfulness to God in this world. And to those with gender dysphoria, this means that the power of the cross gives us hope that no one is locked into their past or into a psychological or biological determinism. But it also means that the cross must be our identity and that woundedness cannot be a surprise. Being able to suffer with fellow believers must be the mark of the followers of Jesus. We must bear one another's burdens. We must, in the words of St. Paul, be willing to be always sorrowful and always rejoicing. New creation. The church embodies the power of the resurrection in the midst of a not yet redeemed world. You see, Christians struggle to live faithfully in the present time, but we do so with the power of the Holy Spirit. But while we have this down payment on the hope 
down payment on our future resurrection, we still live in the midst of the not yet. We still live not yet tasting the final gift of peace with our bodies, the final gift of healing and wholeness, the final gift of freedom that we all long for. That comes at the day of resurrection. Community, cross, and new creation. These have something to say to our witness. But if we're going to respond pastorally, then logically, naturally, the question will be asked, what, what are the limits for that engagement? What can be allowed in this time and what can't? And I, I look forward to having some conversation about this. Because I think we do have one model for responding to those with gender dysphoria. This is not the first time the church has had to weave a response in truth to those who experience a reality that conflicts with truth as revealed by God. Consider, after all, the first sacrament, marriage. Based upon the teaching of the Lord Jesus, once a sacramental marriage is woven, the bonds cannot be broken. In other words, when the glue sets, it's solid. But the experience of the church has also shown us that some marriages, what seem to be marriages, fail beyond repair. They cease to exist in reality, and as a response, some Catholics seek to contract another. So how does the church reconcile these? Well, you all know the response. Objective laymen and women and clergy of discernment investigate and in some cases declare a nullity. 28% of American Catholics are divorced, and of those who have been divorced, about a quarter of them have sought annulments. How do we honor the reality that we see with the divinely revealed truth? And the church has crafted a path forward. But the most difficult cases are those cases where, and this is about roughly 10% of those who seek an annulment, that annulment is denied. And in those cases where a second marriage is attempted and then only later an annulment is sought and that annulment is denied, what do we do? I've spoken with these people. I've had couples in my parish communities in this very situation. What do we do with couples who, in the eyes of the church, are not married and yet have a relationship that is before us? In those realities, we ask the couple to live honoring the revealed truth while offering mercy to the moments when they fail. We ask that they honor the essential reality with no sexual intimacy while giving broadness in other areas. They tend to continue to live together. This is usually referred to as the brother-sister solution. It was the teaching of John Paul II. It goes back to the time of St. Alphonsus Liguori. Could the brother-sister model be an example for some pastoral concessions for families to individuals who suffer from gender dysphoria? I'm asking the question. I think it's something that more theologically inclined and 
and wiser minds should discuss. Could there be some transitory concessions regarding language or even some externals with a telos in mind, similar to how we see the brother-sister solution, so-called, as a concession longing for the telos that eventually these relationships will be healed at the resurrection? Perhaps. And I'll conclude with, with this. Why do we bother at all? The truth is, theological orthodoxy will not spare our families and communities from this. This futility is a part of the veil of tears. Even our piety will not spare our families and communities from this. But the calling of Christians is to live a cross-centered and cross-shaped life, which means in the command of St. Paul, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In the midst of this sighing and groaning world, this Lord Jesus knows what he is about. The groans and labor pains of this broken, hurting world are bringing a new world to birth by the power of the one who holds all things together. And these groans and sighs, if they do nothing else for us, will keep us from an easy orthodoxy that wasn't hard thought and hard prayed. The groans and sighs that we experience, that we wrestle with our brothers and sisters in this gender dysphoria, if they do nothing else, they will keep us from a cheap piety that has not come from a place of tears, of sighing. The ultimate answer to the sighing that's mine and that's yours is not simply healing, but the healer. There is one sigh, one longing that remains, and the answer is the Lord Jesus. And what does he offer to a sighing, groaning humanity? The church. An eternal friendship, a sacramental people founded and grounded in his own self. George Herbert said, of course, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. Well, brothers and sisters, these these brothers and sisters in Christ are weary. And depression and suicide rates bear witness to some of this. But only a living, resurrected man of sorrows can meet their needs, can meet my needs and yours. A man of sorrows in flesh in a community that is always sorrowful, always rejoicing, that is bearing one another's burdens as followers of the Lord Jesus. As we wait for the redemption of our bodies, and the revelation of our great God and Lord. And the last quote from another believer suffering from gender dysphoria from that same study I began with. Reflecting on this line from the book of Job. Though he destroy me, yet will I trust him. Ugly saying until you live it. Then it is like a rock Trust dominates even being apparently destroyed by him. Thus my relationship with God, which was good but not great, was forced to mature or die. I'm glad that in all my anger and bargaining and depression, I still had something in me that wanted him. I'm glad he put that draw within me. One small silver cord of faith that he heard my prayers and would act when the time was right for him not for me. Thank you.